series of messages called Gospel for Heathens, and we are in part four, and we are also in Galatians chapter four, if you've got your Bibles, Galatians chapter four. And today we're going to talk about living free, living free in Christ. Christ has come to give us freedom, and sometimes we don't know what that means. Sometimes we think that's just something that we say. But today we're going to really unpack it. We're going to look at what what freedom does not look like so that we can identify where are we getting caught up in the rat race of life? Where are we getting caught up in the things that uh, humans regularly get caught up in and, and ultimately we are losing our freedom in Christ. Well, last week, if you were here, we looked at Galatians chapter 3, and we talked about the fact that the Galatians were making a horrible mistake, and they were, they, were, they were people who had come to Christ, but then they started to slide back into the old self way of living. And we talked about these two ways of living. The old self, S-E-L-F, is down, up, earth to heaven, rooted in fear, leads to legalism, things that we think we should do to get our way in life, leads to entitlement, leads to stress because things don't work out, bad decisions happen and we go right back down to fear. It becomes this endless cycle of the, what I call the old self, backwards living. We want to live front ways. We want to live forward living. We want to live through what Christ has done. We are saved by grace through faith. We know that's first and foremost. We didn't earn it. God didn't give it to us because we were good people. God gave it to us because he's a good God. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Then we are led and loved by an amazing God who has put his love upon us through the Holy Spirit. And we know we are forever fixed firmly in the family of the living God. I don't know about you, but this is what I want to do. I want to live from heaven to earth. I want to know that my Father loves me. My Savior died for me. The Holy Spirit is living in me. And I'm walking in the power of the newness of life. Anybody with me? Last week, I made a mistake. And I'd like to say that I made this mistake on purpose, but I didn't. What I did was I put this hard line here between the old self and the new self. And how many know it's not always like that? You're not always living new self, old self, old self. New. You're not living like one or the other. Like, like let's be honest, this, this hard line doesn't exist. You know what exists? This mushy middle. I like to call the mushy middle of the Christian struggle. That some days we're going we're gonna to float over here to new self and, and we're going to feel saved. And we're going to feel empowered. And we're going to know God loves us. And, and man, oh yeah, the family. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. How many remember that song? You're old if you do. Okay. And so, you know, the uh, new self days, we'll have new self days. But how many know we'll have old self days? We'll dwell over here. We'll float this way. We'll get back into stressful situations. We'll start thinking, what did I do wrong? What do I need to do better? I need to get God's love back. I need to get God's favor back. I need to get back. I need to, what's wrong with me? And we'll dwell into this. We'll, 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 we'll drift into old self practices. And today we're going to talk about how to stop drifting back into the old self. Today's message is called Stop Chasing the Humans. Stop chasing the humans. Everybody say that with me. One, two, three. Stop chasing the humans. Turn to your neighbor and say, stop chasing the humans. <laughs> You're a very responsive crowd. I love it. Amen. That was the best crowd by far so, so far this, this weekend. God bless you. All right. 
Galatians chapter four, if you got your Bibles, take them out. Let's stand together. We're gonna read the last half of this chapter. We're gonna discuss the first part of this chapter through the message, but we're gonna read the last part because Paul unpacks a big theological principle for us from the Old Testament here in Galatians chapter four, verse 21. And here's what he's saying to the Galatians, who if you remember the condition, they're drifting back into human effort to please God, human effort to get the goodies from God, old self living. So he says this, verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, that is going into the old, Old Testament practices to please God, do you listen to the law? Like, have you read it? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman. Those are Hagar and Sarah. He says, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Somebody say Promise. And he says this, now this may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, we're going to look at this story of Abraham and we're going to apply it to our lives allegorically. He says, these two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery and she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. We talked about this last week. This leads to slavery. I gotta be all about what I'm doing to make sure that God is good with me and I'm good with God and it leads to slavery. He says that's, that's just what Hagar represents. Verse 26, but Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And then he says this to the Galatians. Now you brothers, like Isaac, that was Sarah's son, the child of promise. You brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Christians, 21st century Christians, just hear those words for yourself. You brothers, sisters, you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, the one who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. In other words, those, those human effort people are going to start putting their pressure on you to fit into their group, to make yourself feel better about yourself because you fit in with them, you please them, you do what they want you to do, and they're going to persecute you. He says it's the same thing going on right now. Verse 30, but what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not inherit what the son of the free woman does. So, brothers, we are not children of, slave, of the slave, but we are children of the free woman. And then the first verse in chapter five, here's what he says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. For freedom, Christ has set us free. But look at this warning. You can lose your freedom, Christian. You can lose that sense of new self. So he says, stand firm, therefore. Somebody say, stand firm. firm. And then he says, and do not... Submit again to the yoke of slavery. Do not slide back into old self-practices. This is God's living word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. The name by which we come into this place and have any shot at being right with you. In these next few moments, Holy Spirit, speak. May my words be what you want them to be. And may our ears hear what you want us to hear. And as we pray every week, may we see Jesus. May we see his beauty. And may we live in his liberty 
And in his mighty name, we pray all these things. And everybody said a big? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Stop chasing the humans. I want you to meet my friend who's going to help me preach this weekend. Say hello. I said say hello. Hello. All right, that's better. (laughs) Saying hello to a stuffed animal, I know. Okay. In 1993, a movie came out that starred, starred this little guy. Well, not this guy, but the guy he represents. Does anybody remember the name of the movie? Free Willy. What a great movie, right? Remember the story? Little, little Shamu, little Free Willy was, little Free Willy, little Willy was in the aquarium locked up, serving his slave masters, the awful humans. And he makes this bond with his little boy. He's got to get free. He's got to get out of that captivity. He's got to get away from and live and listen and live the way that God created him to live, free in the ocean, eating fish, enjoying life, right? That's what he was made for. And so this boy forms his bond and he's riding on the back. And he's doing like hand signals and the thing's doing all the kinds of stuff. And gets to the point where he's, he's, he's on the dock or he's on that little uh, uh, rocky pier. And you remember that classic scene? And he stands on the pier and he does his little hand signals. I don't know what he's doing. He's just like hand signals. And, and Willie jumps up out of the water. And you see it in the screenshot. He's like, oh. Look at the freedom. There he goes. Like, and, and, and the little boy, I don't remember his name, he just lifted his hand. And it's just such a beautiful picture of freedom. And he falls into the ocean. And a movie made millions of dollars because everybody loves the idea of the creature made by God being free to live the way he was made to be living, right? It's a beautiful story. But you know what? It wasn't real. It wasn't real because... Willie actually wasn't free. In fact, his name wasn't even Willie. His name was different. In fact, I want to challenge you. I want to give you an opportunity to win a $20 gift card to a coffee place that shall not be named because they do not sponsor my messages yet. (laughs) But I got a $20 gift card to somebody. Who can tell me the name, the real name of Willie? I heard it over here. Kiko, I heard you first. I like shouters. Come on up here, Chip. That's for you. $20. Yeah, amen. Don't raise your hand, just shout. Hallelujah. Praise God. (laughs) Kiko, the real Willie, was a whale named Kiko. And after the movie had such amazing success, commercial success, they decided to look into the real story of the real whale, and they found that Willie was not free at all. He was actually languishing away in a Mexican aquarium that was far too small for him. And, and they knew he was sad because his dorsal fin was wilted. I guess that means, you know, happy whale, sad whale. And so his dorsal fin was wilted and he had legions all up and down his body. And he was languishing. His tiny little aquarium and animal rights activists flipped out. And people started putting money into it. They started raising money to get, get the real Willie free. Like, get Kiko free. Free Kiko. They raised all kinds of money. And they moved him to a bigger aquarium in the Pacific Northwest, but they couldn't set Kiko free. And the reason why they couldn't set him free is because Kiko had become so, so dependent on humans. He couldn't live as a natural whale. His whole life he had been fed free food. His whole life he had performed for others and did his little diving thing and all that kind of swimming thing. And humans would reward him for those things. And on top of it, he became like a very 
you know, um, not self-sufficient well. You know, they said that he couldn't even hold his breath for more than two minutes. They, they, they said that, that he couldn't hunt. So they brought him to the Pacific Northwest. They put him in this very lush, huge aquarium, and, and he still performed, but then they tried to teach him how to hunt. And, and they tried to teach him how to hold his breath. I want you to think about the humor of that idea. Humans were trying to teach a killer whale how to hunt. Humans were trying to teach a killer whale how to hold his breath. What were they like? Okay, Kiko, watch this. <gasps> what, what goes on there? I don't know how that happened, but they couldn't do it. They failed. Then they decided to do tough love. Kiko needs tough love. We're not going to hand him any more fish. We're going to make him go find it. It didn't work. He couldn't do it. He couldn't find the way. Couldn't live. Why? He was enslaved. He was a slave to the humans. He couldn't let them go. After 20 years, and listen, not just 20 years, but $20 million into the Free Kiko Foundation. Eventually, they decide he's ready. And they had no idea if he really was ready, but they thought, we're just kind of sick and tired of caring for Kiko and the money's kind of running out, so let's let him free. They moved him up into the, into the North Atlantic Ocean. They put him in this kind of retro, kind of hybrid aquarium in the, in the middle of the ocean, and, and they let him explore freedom, but he would always come back, explore freedom, always come back, and the money finally ran out, and they had to just set Kiko free, and, and so they let him go. What would become of Kiko? They tagged his little fin here so that they could find out, well, do you know that it took less than a month, and Kiko showed up in the North Atlantic Sea to a guy who was fishing with his daughter in his little pontoon boat. Kiko comes up to the boat, freaks them out. They're scared to death, this killer whale. They start going home. Guess what Kiko does? He follows them home. They want to get away from the killer whale. The killer whale doesn't want to get away from them. They pull up into their house. They get out of the water. They get into their house. They're like hiding from Kiko. Guess what Kiko does? He just hangs out at their little port. He waits for them to come out. Finally, after a day of just sitting there, they realize this, this killer whale is harmless. They come out, they feed Kiko some fish. Kiko loves it again. He's back at it. The guy gets so brave, he actually puts his daughter on Kiko, and Kiko takes his daughter around in the little ford off the shore of Norway. And the reality of Kiko, the sad reality of Kiko, is that he lived in that ford for another year, and then he died of pneumonia. Kiko could never go back. Kiko could never figure out how to live free. You know what Kiko's problem was? The article that I read in the New York Times, it was so funny. It said that he was raised in captivity, number one. He became dependent on his captors. And number three, he, he loved the life of a celebrity. How ironic is it that even whales love being celebrities for humans? And you know, what you know what the problem with Kiko was? Kiko couldn't stop chasing the humans. Stop chasing the humans. Learn. This is my message this weekend. Learn from Kiko. You've been raised in captivity. You've probably become dependent on what people can do for you, what people can say about you, how people can love you. And deep down inside, we all know, deep down inside, there's this little, 
little hole in our heart is missing the approval, the affection, the adoration of other people so that we feel whole. And I want to tell you, that's not new self-living rooted in what God has done for you. That's old self-living trying to live up to the expectations, the demands, the requirements of, of whatever group or person that you are trying to fit in with. And today I want to help you get free Stop chasing the humans and start living as a freed son or daughter of the living God who loved you and gave his son for you so that you can live the way he wants you to live. Which way are you going? Some of you are swimming toward the old self. Look on the screen. It's funnier that way. Some of, you, some of you are swimming here, but, but you know there's, there's this little tug. There's this little tug to the old way. So today, the question is this, though. How do we know? Like, how do we know if we're old self drifting or we're new self living? What, which way is it going for us? And I think what it is, really, is our old self is tugged by what I'm going to call for this message, secondary saviors. Secondary saviors. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down what I think a secondary savior is, what I, what I think that we all will inherently understand in just a few moments. A secondary savior is anything, anyone, or any group, anything, anyone, or any group that becomes the main thing, goal, objective for your life instead of the love of God in Christ. A secondary savior will enslave you. A secondary savior will hold you back. You say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'll give you some examples. You know, almost anything can be a secondary savior. Like if you're single, a secondary savior could be finding someone, someone to love you for who you are. You know, you, just, I just, I, you, you watch enough romantic comedy movies, you start to fall for this idea that there's somebody out there who's going to save you from the isolation, save you from the hopeless situation of singleness, and I need to put my trust in someone. And if you're not careful, you'll set them up as a savior to give you value, worth, significance, self-respect, instead of rooting yourself and the love of God in Christ. If you're not careful, your career could become a secondary savior. I gotta live for this money level. I gotta live for this income. I gotta live for this you know, notoriety in my field of expertise. I gotta have people say to me, wow, you are really good at what you do. And if you're not careful, your career, your job, your talents can become secondary saviors that you start defining your life by how good you perform for the humans. Instead of rooting yourself in the love of God in Christ Jesus that, that he accomplished for you 2,000 years ago when Jesus shed his blood for you. It's a secondary savior. If you're not careful, your family can become a secondary savior. Almost anything can become this thing that you say, I gotta have this. And if I don't have this, I'm nothing and I'm nobody. And the gospel comes and it declares with astounding power through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that human beings are not valuable because of what other human beings can do for them, but human beings are valuable because 2,000 years ago, our Father in heaven sent his Son to earth to die and shed his blood and purchase men and women back to God. Root yourself in that, and the secondary saviors will lose their savor in your life. That's what I'm talking about today. That's what I'm talking about today. So the question is, and I think it's an important question, 
How, what are the signs? Like, what are, what are the signs that we know? We're swimming back, back downstream. And I, I got four of them, and then, and then we're going to close out with a choice. Number one, if you're taking notes, secondary saviors are identifiable because secondary saviors lead to superstitious living. Superstitious living. Back in Galatians, Paul is talking about that in just a moment. Before we read from Galatians 4.8, I, I want to talk about what I mean by superstitious living. You know, humans are naturally superstitious, aren't they? We're naturally superstitious. Like, we know this from this past weekend. Like, that whole business on the, on the video about lucky seat, not lucky seat. Like, I was the one. I was like, you got to put that in the video. Like, that's me. Anybody, anybody do this with the Super Bowl, the big game moments? Come on, you know you do it. Anybody honest here? You do the lucky seat crap. You know, you think I'm going to make them win. I do it. My hand is up because I do it. This past Super Bowl, I was in the wrong seat. 2011, I was in the same season. See, the person that invited me over for 2011, I didn't go for 2014. We won. I sat in my couch. They won. Then against my better judgment, I accepted the invitation back to the 2011 seat. And I don't want to disparage anybody's character or reputation. I don't want to tell you who it is. I'll just, I'll just refer to this person as S. Parsons, just to protect his identity. <laughs> I go back, and I'm there, and man, it's going badly, and I'm sitting in the wrong house, and I know it. I'm like, this is bad. It's 28 to 3. We got to go. I'm like, come on, kids. We're going home. We got to get to my lucky seat. I'm kidding you not. I sit down on my couch. Strip sack immediately happens. The whole game turns everything downhill. They win the championship. I was there. I was where I should have been. So we have established that I am the reason for the turnaround. You're welcome. <laughs> right? Like how, how, you know, like, you know, sports superstitions are fun. They're, they're harmless, like to an extent. They're harmless. And it's not real. We all know it deep down it's not real, but it's kind of just fun. But how many know that there are some spiritual superstitions we can fall for that aren't fun? They're harmful. And so Paul's going to take that on with the Galatians. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, formerly, it's like, remember your former life before you knew Christ, when you didn't know God. What does he say? You were what? Enslaved. You were in bondage to those by nature, are the, the, to those that by nature are not gods. And, and we're going to talk about what those are. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, it says, how can you turn back again to those weak and worthless, and here they are, elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And here's what they were doing. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And he says, I'm afraid for you. You're slipping back into what I call pagan spirituality. You're observing days, months, and years. Here's what Paul's saying. Look, there's never been a culture in the history of humanity where they found a certain people group and there wasn't some kind of pagan spirituality within that resident group. And, and, and ancient cultures were known for this. They worshiped the stars. They worshiped the moon. They worshiped the visible things, the trees. They'd go to temple shrines and they would have sex because they believed that they had sex in the temple shrines that their, their agriculture would go well. 
They, they believed all of these things, all these superstitions. And listen, every human being naturally is superstitious. And, and we start to do this thing where we start to think that if I do my part, God's going to do his part. And it, and it really feeds the old self. Like I can wrangle out of the hand of God the blessings that I think God deserves. I can twist God's arm. I can do the things and make sure that God is obligated to bless me. Paul says that's just pagan, ancient, superstitious spirituality. Leads to bondage because it doesn't always go well with that. It doesn't always work out for you. As Christians, we can fall into this. As Christians, we fall into superstitious living. When things go poorly for us, we start to think, man, what did I do wrong? Maybe God is paying me back from my sins in my past life. Or we can start to think, well, maybe if I fast more or pray more, Maybe if I start to do more spiritual things, then God will love me more. As if like God's level is like human. As if God is like, you know, somebody that you've got to appease to make sure that he is pleased with you. And it just leads to bondage and superstitious living. And you start to turn to almost anything. You start to get, I hate to say this, but you start to get spiritually wacky. Anybody know a few spiritual wacky people? Like, like they start to think, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. And they just start to get under the rat race of Christianity. And a guy, speaking of Jew, like the Galatians, their issue was they were getting drawn back into Judaism, being more Jewish to be pleasing to God. I had a guy, he was a friend of mine, actually not really a friend, but he was in the church that I was pastoring, youth pastor at. He got so enamored with Jewish spirituality, got so enamored with going back to the Old Testament. And he was a Christian. That he went so far as to celebrate like the feast, Pentecost, Passover, Feast of Booths, all these Old Testament feasts. And, and he got so enamored into it that he got caught up into this group of people that were getting their blood tested to see if they had any Jewishness in them through their DNA. It's like, what are you doing? You're getting wacky. You're getting kooky. What is he doing though? Christ wasn't enough. He needed something more. He needed to know that God loved him because of something else inside of him. And when we lose sight, when we lose sight of the fact that God has saved us in Christ Jesus, we'll turn to these forms of spiritual superstition and get enslaved to them. And what God is trying to say to you and to me is you don't need anything else to make yourself pleasing to me. You need to trust that I've already become pleased with you through the work of my son, Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. And nothing you do makes me love you more. And nothing you do makes me love you less because I am your father and you are my child. That's freedom. That's freedom. And, 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 and Paul says, look, you're going to become slaves. And, and, and notice how he puts it. He says, look, your new life is this. You've come to know God. But then he says, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Not that you've come to know God. He says, you've come to be known by God. What is he saying? He's saying this was God's work in you, not your work for God. He's come to know you. You know what a privilege it is to be a Christian? You know what a privilege it is? Like some of you, I, I fear for you because some of you don't get this, and I really want you to get it. This is what Galatians is all about. To know you're a Christian, to be a Christian, is to know that God came after you. To be a Christian is to know that God refused to give up on you. 
To be a Christian is to know that God saw you from before you were born, just like Paul says in Galatians 1, and he sets you apart. He said, I've got a purpose for you. Trust me, follow me, walk with me. We're going to do this together. Christianity is not religion, friend. Religion is us up to God. Christianity is God come down to us in Christ Jesus to come and to seek and to say that which was lost, and now we are known by God. Do you have that rooted down deep inside of you? Because if you don't, man, you'll be pulled, pulled into the stream of old self-living. Number two, secondary saviors lead to stubbornness. We get stubborn when we're serving something other than Jesus. What do I mean by that? If you're serving that lifestyle, if you're serving that group, If you're living for that neighborhood, if you're living for the approval of others, how many know as soon as that's threatened, you start to get stubborn. You start to think, I I need to have this. Why? Because I need to be, I need to live in this kind of house. I need to have this kind of lifestyle. I need to have this kind of marriage. I need to have these kind of kids. And if I don't, I'm going to get angry. You know how you know, you know how you identify the idols in your life? What makes you ticked off? Because as soon as your idols are threatened, you get nasty. And for some of you, it's like the idol of respect. I need everybody to respect me. And as soon as someone shows you disrespect, you flip out. You're stubbornly tied to respect. Some of, you, some of you ladies, you're stubbornly tied to having the perfect Christian husband. It's quiet in here. <laughs> I'm going to go with it anyway, though. You know what I'm talking about? You know what's the problem? You've read too many Christian fiction novels. You've watched too many Christian movies. I can't stand Christian movies. I can't, I don't like them because they lie to you. Life does not always work out for the person who prays more. It just doesn't always work like that. The early Christians were praying on their way to being burned alive, burned on the stake. They were praying and worshiping because they knew that this life wasn't the life. The life to come was the life that they were all about. And sometimes we get so tied up. It's American Christians. I got to have the perfect Christian marriage. Let me just ask you a question. What's the perfect Christian marriage? Who sold you on that? Where'd you get that idea? I guarantee you, you did not get it from this book. I guarantee you. Have you seen the marriages in this book? (laughs) I just want a man like David. Why can't my husband be more like David? Okay, David committed adultery and killed the woman's husband. You want David now? I just want my husband to be a spiritual leader like Abraham. I just want him to be like, okay, Abraham slept with his wife's servant maid, and it caused a whole hang of a mess. We're still living with it today. It's why there's no peace in the Middle East. You want Abraham now? Like, where do you get these ideas? You get them from Christians who will put pressure on you. Spiritual superstition. My husband needs to be like that. My wife needs to be like that. And singles, singles, pay attention for a second. Pay attention for a second. You will not marry Jesus. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Oh, you should write this down. You will not marry. And you will never find Jesus in another person. You won't. You're going to find yourself one jacked up sinner. (laughs) Find the one that's just jacked up to the level that you can tolerate. Amen, somebody? (laughs) I know he's jacked up. But I can live with that. I can live with that, okay? We'll work with that. 
And, then, and we set these idols up in our hearts. And it was, when I was single, it was like this, this book. I'm not going to mention the book. I'm so tempted to, but I'm not. It just taught us like how to, how to like do things so that you find the perfect Christian spouse. And no, nah, I can't say it. Okay, I'll say it. We can delete it from the video later. It's called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And it set, it set this thing up that if you do this, you know, if you, and it's like, if you date Jesus for a year, then God will bring you the perfect spouse. It's like, wait, that's not how it works. Because there's no perfect spouse. And you get so stubborn, you get so stuck into that thing. And then what happens is now it's like God owes you. Guess what that is? That's just Christian entitlement. You got to get free from this stuff. Maybe, maybe your divine assignment from God was to love that spouse regardless of how they perform for you. I know some of you don't want to hear that. You're like, really? This is from God? No! Maybe, maybe your marriage, just, just hear me out. Maybe your marriage is supposed to be your marriage. With all the holes and faults and foibles that come with being your marriage. We set up these things, these idols in our heart, and guess what happens? We get stubborn. Why won't you? I'm mad. You're not being, this is not working. And the temptation, especially for young married Christian couples, young married Christian couples, pay attention. You'll come to a church like this, you'll see all the happy Christian marriages, right? And you'll start to say, why are they so happy and we're so miserable? Here's why. Because any married people can fake it for an hour and a half. (laughs) Trust me, me and my wife do it every weekend. Hallelujah. (laughs) And we know that you do it too. That's what makes us family. It's okay. It's okay to not have that perfect idealistic Christian life. Don't get tied to these ideas that are sold to you by Christians who make money printing books and making movies. Get rooted in the fact that God is working on you in your situation with you now with all the stuff that's going on, with all the things that you hate about your life that's still in the midst of all that God is working on you called being flexible. This is what Paul says back to the text. To the Galatians, he says in verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I became as you are. And and what Paul's saying is, remember when I first met you that I changed who I was so that I could reach you for Christ. One of the things you need to know about Paul was that he was tremendously flexible. Like this, this guy who was this most strict Jew ever, when he comes to Christ, he suddenly becomes flexible with everybody. And he says it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I, you know, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Why? So I could win them. He said, I remember when I was at the Gentiles, I became like a Gentile. Why? So I could win them. It goes on in verse 22. He said, when I, when I was with weak people, I became weak. When I was with strong people, I became strong. And he says, I try to find common ground with everyone. What is he saying? What is he saying? I'm flexible. I'm not tied to this thing, this idealistic life that, that somebody else sold me. I can adjust. Friends, if you don't learn how to adjust, you'll fall to pieces 
as soon as your ideal falls apart in the slightest little way. As soon as, you, as soon as that relationship breaks up, you'll fall to pieces. Why? It's a secondary savior you've been serving. Your idol's been threatened. Let it go. Stop chasing the humans. You know another word for stubbornness? Religious. It's just religion. The funny thing about religion, it comes from religious. It comes from a Latin word, relegare. Relegare in Latin, we get the word relegate from. And in Latin, relegare means re, which means again. And legare means to tie up, to bind up. Religious people are bound up again and again and again. You know, one of the things about our church is that we're always changing. Religious people can't change. They can't change. Got a church like this. It has to be church like this for the rest of all mankind. Really? Culture changes. We can change with culture. We never change the message. We always change the way we deliver it. Hallelujah. Like I remember when we were in a church building. We're church building, white church building on the corner with steeple and everything like that. And we outgrew it and we had to walk away from it. And it would cost us a lot of money. We walked away from it because we wanted to grow. We wanted to reach people. Three months go by, I realize there's two families not with us anymore. You know what happened? They stayed with the building. They stayed with the building. They couldn't, they couldn't imagine worshiping Jesus in a warehouse. They have to be in a church with a steeple. Like church, steeple, steeple. If the steeple's not there, the Holy Spirit doesn't show up. Really? In the first century, they were in their homes worshiping Jesus. We don't get tied to a style. Some of you come to Waters Church, and I know I see a watch. The first song starts. The band is super loud. The, the light show. The smoke from our seven smoke machines to the glory of God. You know. Some of you watch, you're like, oh, here they go again. This is why I come late. This is why I come late. Right? And you hate it. You know why? You know why? I'm just being kind, just being kind, being honest. You know why? Because you're tied to a style. But listen, look down the row at the closest 20-year-old you can find during that moment. And while you're sitting there bemoaning it, they're sitting there saying, I like this church. That is cool. You know why? Because we're not religious about the style. We're completely dedicated to the message of Jesus, but everything else can change. Why? Because we're flexible. We're not serving a Christian idol. We're not chasing what humans can do for us. We're doing what God has called us to do. Number three, secondary saviors lead to stinginess. Stinginess. You can't live open-handed when you're serving a secondary savior. I'll explain in a minute. Look what Paul says. He says in verse 13, he says, you know that I came to you because of a bodily ailment and I preached the gospel to you. In other words, I was sick and my sickness led to me meeting you and preaching Jesus to you. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me, you did not despise me, but you received me as an angel of God. In other words, you got saved and you just loved the fact that I was there no matter how bad of a condition I was in. And then he says this, what then? Verse 15, big, big verse, big question. What then has become of your blessedness? Like, blessedness, what does that mean? It's a word that Jesus uses in, in the Sermon on the Mount, not the one we talked about last week, the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger after God, blessed are the, you know, the, the, the pure in heart, all those things. You are going to be blessed. The word blessed means that you live above the circumstances of normal life. The word is makarios in the Greek. In the ancient Greek culture, 
the uh, Greek pagan uh, worship um, religions, they would, they would ascribe blessedness to their gods because they believed that their gods lived above normal human experiences, normal human living. Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, if you put your trust in me, you're going to live above. You're going to live above the circumstances. You're going to be blessed. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit because yours is what? The kingdom of heaven. In other words, when you get to the end of yourself, when you get to the end of your life, when you get to the end of what you can do and you start putting your trust in what God can do for you, guess what Jesus says? The floodgates of heaven open up to you and you get all the resources of the kingdom of God at your disposal. It's blessedness. Paul says you lost something here. You lost this sense of blessedness. And he goes, look, For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. How many know that when you're willing to gouge out your eyes for somebody, that's pretty generous of you, amen? He says, says, Galatians, you've lost that sense of giving. You've become stingy. Because why? Your idol's been threatened. Like, like here's, here's the lifestyle people. People looking for the great neighborhood, the great lifestyle, the great American dream, the white picket fence, the two-car garage, the dog, the cat, the two kids that are beautiful and go to all the plays. They're in all the sports. You're chasing that American life because you don't want your kids being uh, growing up and resenting you and hating on you for not doing certain things for you. And you're serving that secondary savior of the perfect American family. He says, guess what happens when you do that? You can't live generous. You can't live get generous. You can't let go of anything. Because anytime people ask you to give, it's like a threat to the lifestyle you want to live. You're serving a secondary savior. Again, it's quiet in here. And I keep going, though, because this is what happens, and then we stop living. Here's what we do. We stop living like we know that God always has enough. Like we know that our Father in heaven owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that none of, this, none, none, none of these sparrows lack for anything. The grass of the field is beautiful. All the things of this creation are provided for. And if my Father can provide for a sparrow, I know his eye is on me. I have every freedom to be generous with what he gives me because I know my God shall supply all my needs. According to his riches and glory, stinginess, stinginess, oh, secondary saviors. Don't serve the savior. You know, you could do everything you want for your kids. You could put them in every play, every production, every sport, every ballet recital till kingdom come. They still can grow up and hate you. All they got to do is find a non-Christian and marry them. Amen. (laughs) Watch out for the secondary saviors. They will always let you down. Number four, finally, secondary saviors lead to sectarianism. I I, I call this the, I need that group of people to like me syndrome. I need that neighborhood to like me. I need my family to accept me. I need my father to say he loves me. I need my mother to hug me. For heaven's sakes, why wouldn't she love me? Why didn't they? And you're falling into this this sectarianism and you're trying to please the emotional qualifications of some group of people. It's a secondary savior. I'm not saying it's, it's bad to have a loving mother or seek for that or look for reconciliation. That's good. But sometimes we're just not going to get it. Sometimes it's just not going to be there. 
What, what, do, we, what do we gotta do? We gotta root ourselves in the love of God. Root ourselves in the fact that Jesus' blood was shed. Root ourselves in knowing he's for us. Who can be against us? Amen, somebody? He says in verse 17, look at this. I love these words. He says, they, that's the Jewish leaders, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. In other words, they flatter you, but they're not doing it for you. So he says, they, they want to... Um, they want to shut you out so that you may make much of them. In other words, they want to be sectarian so that you look up and go, ooh, I want to be part. I want to be part of that group. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. In other words, when people really love you and they make much of you, that's good. But he says, look, my little children, verse 19, for whom I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is for me, I want to be there with you. I want to make much of you the way that, that you should be made much of, and that is because I know who I am in Christ, and you know who you are in Christ, and we love each other freely because our love doesn't come from us. It comes from him. We're rooted in that. We don't have to be sectarian. We don't have to be with the in crowd. We don't have to be looking for the approval of some select group of people. I just, I just, I just call it like old-fashioned high school lunch table politics. Just goes with you through life. I need that group. That group is great. That group is important. Who says? Somebody sold you on a secondary savior, and you know what it's time to do? It's time to let them go and stop chasing the humans. You've got a final choice in this whole matter. Slavery or sonship. It's your final choice. Slavery or sonship. You're going to be a slave to what humans can do for you. You're going to be a slave to what they can feed you. You're going to be a slave to that ego, that lifestyle, that, that marriage ideal, that, that Christian ideal. Of it. Or are you going to learn that you are forever done, finished, a son, a daughter of the living God, and no man can add to it, and no man can take away from it? There was a man that found this out. Over the course of his life, his name was Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen probably goes down in history as one of the greatest Christian, one of the greatest Christian writers of the 20th century. He was a very popular Catholic priest, Catholic theologian, but he was loved by Protestants too, which is very, very rare. And uh, he wrote many books. And, and he was tenured with Notre Dame, Yale Divinity School, Harvard Divinity School. That's like... That's like the, the highest that you can get in the theological scholarly world. Well, he comes across a painting by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. We can put that on the screen. And he sees this painting that Rembrandt painted in the 1600s of, of the prodigal son who comes back to the voice of the father. Something happened inside of him. And, 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 and now one says that everything that he was looking for for significance and value in his life. Even as a Christian, he says, that didn't compare to what I saw in that prodigal son's return to the father. And, and, and you know what happens? He sees the painting. He says, I got to find the original. He flies to St. Petersburg, to the museum where it was. And he sits in front of that painting literally for six days. And he just absorbs that moment comes back home and he gives up his tenure. He gives up his professorship. He gives up all the things that he was chasing. He moves to Toronto and he spends the last 10 years of his life ministering to the mentally handicapped. The people, everybody else forgot. You know what he said? 
He said, I was set free by the love of God to love the people that could do nothing for me in return. And then he says, when I learned that, I, I got more love than I ever expected from those people. I really found love and family because I was free to love those nobody else loved. And, and I just want to read you this quote. Such a powerful quote. He says, the, far, the farther I run away from the place where God dwells, the less I am able to hear the voice that calls me the beloved. And the less I hear that voice, the more entangled I become in the manipulations and the power games of the world. It goes somewhat like this. I'm not so sure anymore that I have a safe home. I, and I observe other people who seem to be better off than me. And I wonder, how can I get to where they are? Chasing the humans. I try to please, to achieve success, to be recognized. When I fail, I feel jealous or resentful of others. When I succeed, I worry that others will be jealous or resentful of me. I become suspicious, defensive, increasingly afraid. I won't get what I so much deserve or I will lose what I already have. Caught in this tangle of needs and wants, I no longer know my own motivations. I feel victimized by my surroundings, distrustful of what others are saying or doing. Always on my guard, I lose my inner freedom and I start dividing the world into those who are for me and those who are against me. And I wonder if anyone really cares. The world around me becomes dark. My heart grows heavy. My body is filled with sorrow. My life loses meaning. I've become a lost soul. He says, when I come back to the Father, when I come back to the Father, all that garbage that I chased, that I sought after those secondary saviors lose their power over me because I know who I am. I know what I am. I'm creating the image to live after my God. Can I just say to you, learn from Kiko. Can we do this? Stop chasing the humans. Start trusting your father and live free. Would you stand with me?